Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, I don't know about you, but last Sunday seems like forever ago. Uh, there's been a lot between last Sunday and this Sunday that's been going on with Christmas and all that sort of stuff. Um, but if you remember last Sunday, we kind of talked about the two sides of our Christmas experience, the pre-Christmas experience, right? There's the kids' side, which is excitement and anticipation and, and fun. Um, and then there's the parents' side, which is, you know, risking your life to hang Christmas lights outside your house. It's, it's going to uh, get the right presents and make sure that they're of good quality and wrap them and put them under the tree and make sure every kid has the same amount. And then getting the right, the right food for, for Sunday or for Christmas morning and Christmas evening. And so there's kind of two sides of that pre-Christmas story, but there's also two sides of the post-Christmas story. Um, so yesterday, you know, my kids opened the gifts and, and it was very fun and they were playing with them and they were very entertained all day. Uh, but I just remember walking from my living room back to my kitchen and looking back and just kind of seeing the aftermath of Christmas. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where there's like all that wrapping paper that's just shredded everywhere and we have to pick it up and all the stuff has to go and be put away in the rooms and things like that. And, and the aftermath of Christmas continues on uh, into the day. I, I don't know how it works in your house, but in my house, Trisha gets busy working on lunch or dinner or whatever it might be. And then I start to put together the stuff, right? The toys or whatever it might be. And so uh, yesterday, one of my kids got one of those uh, inflatable punching bags, you know, um, and at the bottom of that punching bag, there is a big bladder that you put water in so that it stays stable. So the kid can punch it and it pops back up and stuff like that. Well, when he opened it or when Chris was kind of over, I was like, oh, I can put that together for you. And so I got my, my inflatable pump thing and, and it, it, no kidding, it took me about an hour uh, to put this thing together, to inflate it, to get the water in it. And of course, along the way, my wife is offering helpful uh, suggestions to me, which I am really uh, not too excited to hear. Uh, but, you know, I almost lost my ordination, but I made it through. I made it through, okay? And so that's part of the aftermath of Christmas, and it continues on, right? You have to risk your life again to take the Christmas lights down off of the house. You have to put away the tree or, or the decorations or all those sorts of things. And so there's kind of this, this this, this, these repercussions after Christmas. Today, we're going to actually be looking at the aftermath of that first Christmas. Again, not from an earthly realm, uh, but more so from a heavenly and spiritual realm. And so if you would, please open up to Revelation chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 17 today. It's page 1034 in the Red Bible. Uh, again, last week we were looking at the other side of Christmas, the spiritual realms of Christmas, the heavenly realms of Christmas. And there were three main characters, which we're also going to continue to see in today's passage. Uh, one character was the agonizing woman uh, who represented the people of God, Israel, in the Old Testament, who has gone through much suffering and struggles, uh, but also was the one who produced the promised child 
child from Genesis 3.15. And then there was, you remember that Christmas baby-killing dragon, uh, the devil, Satan, who was waiting to devour the child upon its birth. And then finally, there was the Christmas child, the promised one of Israel, who was and will be and uh, will forever be the king of kings, uh, who is the crusher of Satan's head. Now we turn uh, to verses 7 through 17 of this chapter. And in some ways, it's a retelling of verses 1 through 6, but with more detail. And so it's kind of like we're watching the same movie over again, but with the director's cut that has different angles and different details that tell us more about the story. And so let's look here, verse 7 through 17, uh, and discover the aftermath of that first Christmas in the spiritual realms. Verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to, help, uh, came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed that, the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you are not only in sovereign control of the earthly Christmas story, but also the heavenly Christmas story of what comes before, during, and after and so, God, as we study the aftermath of Christmas from the heavenly realms, Lord God, pray that you would encourage us and embolden us in the earthly realms to live for your glory with great joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week I had to get the sermon in early in the sermon title, and I named it The Aftermath of Christmas, which is an okay name. Uh, but I know that for most of us, that word aftermath has very negative connotations. Uh, maybe a better title would have been the ramifications of that first Christmas. It's both positive and negative things that came out of that Christmas morning. 
And the question for us here today, maybe the question for you that you have is, how is there any ramifications of the birth of some guy that happened 2,000 years ago, who died 2,000 years ago? What repercussions does it have on my life, if any? I mean, I wasn't there when he was born. I wasn't there when he died. What, what does it have to do with my life today? Well, you see, uh, there are many things that have happened in history that have major repercussions on your life. For example, I'll give you an example from my own life. In 1962, there was an education class held uh, at the University of Bowling Green in Ohio. And in that education class, there was a boy student and a girl student who met for the very first time. Well, that boy student and that girl student ended up dating and getting married. And as a result, I was born. And because I was born, uh, I married Trisha. And if I wasn't born, you know, she would certainly be a single maiden, always looking for the perfect husband. But she found me, right? And, and so Trisha was married to me, and then we had our four children. And all of these happened because of an event that happened a long time ago that I was not at. You see, there are past historical events that have a dramatic impact on you today. And the same is true of Christ's birth. You were not there, I was not there, and yet it is probably the single most influential event in the history of the world, the way it has guided and directed the empires of the world, but also the reverberations that we feel today. And so what is the aftermath, the repercussions of Christ being born on Christmas? Well, first, what we will see here is that one of the repercussions of Christmas is that the dragon has been defeated. Look at verse seven with me. It says, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Now, now this verse tells us where the battle is happening. It says it's happening in heaven and the spiritual realms. And on one side of the battle is Michael, who is an archangel in charge of many other angels. And he is fighting against this devil dragon and all of his evil angels. The book of Daniel tells us that Michael uh, is a spiritual prince, a guardian of God's people. In Jude chapter 9, in Jude verse 9, excuse me, Michael is identified as an archangel that contends with the devil. Now, when you think of angels, if you think of a naked baby playing a harp on a cloud, you have the wrong impression of angels. Angels are the exact opposite of that picture. Angels are these warrior messengers that cause terror into anyone who sees them. As a matter of fact, whenever an angel shows up throughout the scriptures, the very first thing they say is, fear not, do not be afraid. Because when people see an angel, they are just overwhelmed with awesome terror at the beauty and glory and might of these angels. As a matter of fact, this past week, I kind of did a Google search and I found this statue of the archangel Michael. And this is more of a representation of what an angel is like an angelic warrior. And so as you think about Michael, I think what we need to keep in mind is that he is one bad mumba jumba, okay? And the good news is that this archangel, Michael, who has overseen these heavenly hosts of angels in battle, is not fighting against us, but he is fighting for us against this devil dragon. Verse seven again says, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Now remember this devil dragon, Satan is the ancient serpent, 
And Satan is responsible for all the misery in this world. Uh, he is responsible for the misery in your life. He is responsible for the misery in South Africa. He is responsible for the misery everywhere. Satan is constantly seeking to create turmoil and pain and suffering in this world. And as we learned last week, and this is so important, that Satan, this devil dragon, is so cunning, so crafty, so mighty, so powerful that no human is a match for him. He can easily defeat any human being. And so why this is such good news, because what we learn here is that this point in time, which we'll talk about when that is, Michael and his angels attack the dragon and his evil angels on our behalf. And this is where we hear the great news in verse eight. It says, but he, the devil dragon, was defeated. The devil dragon, past tense, was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This being thrown down from heaven to earth is something we'll talk about later in the sermon. But the main point of this passage here is that Satan, that great and powerful demon dragon, the deceiver of mankind, the enemy of our souls who wanted to consume that Christ child at his birth has been defeated. He has been conquered. He has been thrown out of heaven. This is one of the glorious aftermaths of Christmas. To put this in perspective for us, maybe something we can resonate with. A few months ago, we remembered 9-11. It was the 20th anniversary if you were around on 9-11, you remember 9-11. It was a horrible sight, a time of grieving for our country. Well, about 10 years after that, on May 2nd, 2011, I believe it was, the president addressed the nation. And I want to read you some of what his speech was about 10 years after 9-11, okay? It's a little bit long, but I think it's helpful for us understanding the spiritual battle that's going on. The president said this, tonight I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda and a terrorist who was responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and children. It was nearly 10 years ago that a bright September day was darkened by the worst attack on the American people in our history. The images of 9-11 are seared into our national memory, hijacked planes cutting through the cloudless September sky, the Twin Towers collapsing to the ground, black smoke billowing up from the Pentagon, the wreckage of Flight 93 in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And yet we know the worst images are those that were unseen to the world. The empty seat at the dinner table, children who were forced to grow up without their mother or their father, parents who would never know the feeling of their child's embrace, nearly 3,000 citizens taken from us, leaving a gaping hole in our hearts. Osama bin Laden avoided capture and escaped across Afghan border into Pakistan. Meanwhile, Al-Qaeda continued to operate from along the border and operate through its affiliates across the world. And so shortly after taking office, I directed Leon Panetta, the director of the CIA, to make the killing or capture of bin Laden the top priority of our war against Al-Qaeda, even as we continued our broad efforts to disrupt, dismantle, and defeat his network. 
Today, at my direction, the United States launched a targeted operation against that compound in Pakistan. A small team of Americans carried out the operation with extraordinary courage and capability in a firefight that killed Osama bin Laden. The American people did not choose this fight. It came to our shores and started with the senseless slaughter of our citizens. And then he ends with this, or at least this is what I will end with. He says, on nights like this one, we can say to those families who have lost loved ones to Al-Qaeda's terror, justice has been done. I don't know if you remember that night in 2011 when this uh, announcement was made by the President of the United States, but I remember it. And I remember right after the announcement was made, they cut uh, to footage outside of the White House where people were celebrating and dancing and singing. And then they cut to footage at Times Square in New York. And then most powerfully, they cut to footage at Ground Zero where people were celebrating. Why? Because our enemy had been defeated. The one who had caused so much terror and pain and suffering in our world. And yet that enemy is just a shadow of our greater enemy. You see, our greater enemy is underneath all of our earthly enemies. Satan, that great devil dragon, is our ultimate enemy. And the good news of great joy, the aftermath of Christmas, is that the devil, although he is not yet dead, has been defeated. The war is over. Now, a question that will lead us into our second point is, when did this battle happen? When did Michael, the archangel, and his troops of angels pursue and defeat Satan and cast him out of heaven? Well, look with me, and we'll see how the child, this Christmas child, is victorious. Verse 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Again, just to refresh us here, this, this great dragon is devil, it is Satan, uh, but it also calls him the ancient serpent. And we look last week back at Genesis chapter 3. He is the serpent that infiltrated the Garden of Eden and deceived Adam and Eve uh, into eating the forbidden fruit, right? He says, you know, God just gives you one tree you can't eat of. Forget all of these hundreds of trees that you can eat from. But God is oppressive. He is mean. He is cruel because he will not let you eat of this one tree. Satan has continued to deceive throughout the history of the world convincing us, and we've all been convinced, we've all been deceived by Satan into thinking that God's law is oppressive, that it is cruel, that it is unreasonable, and that it robs us of our freedom, right? We've all been deceived in those ways. Instead of remembering that God's law is a gift from a loving father who cares for us and cherishes us and wants the best for us. Verse nine continues. It says, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now, at this point in time, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. You see, the battle was waged against Satan by Michael when the son accomplished his purpose, when he accomplished his mission. And do you know what the mission was of that promised child? Well, he tells us himself. Jesus says in Luke 19.10, talking about himself, he says, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. His mission was our salvation. And it had been accomplished. And when it was accomplished, Michael and the archangels came after the devil. Now, what's so interesting in this passage 
is that Satan is not only the deceiver of humanity, but Satan is also the accuser of God's people. He's the accuser of us. So, so imagine this. Imagine you are in a heavenly courtroom, okay? And, and the, the devil is the prosecuting attorney. Uh, you are the defendant. I think that's what it's called. And, and the question is, are you righteous? Are you a righteous person? And so the devil, the prosecuting attorney, uh, draws out all of this stuff from your history and says, look at what Dan Jackson did as a kid when he stole that candy from the store. Look at what Dan Jackson did in college when he cheated on that test. Look how Dan Jackson sometimes talks mean to his wife. Look how sometimes Dan Jackson uh, lashes out at his children. Right, and so he, he, he lays out all of this evidence. And what's so interesting about that is that as he lays out this evidence about my own unrighteousness, he doesn't have to deceive. He doesn't have to cast any deception at all. All he has to do is be perfectly honest and present the clear evidence to the judge. And so as he presents this evidence to the judge, the question is, how could I respond? How could I respond to this? And really, the only way I could respond is to say, Satan, you don't even know the half of it. <laughs> you don't, you, you, as, mu as much sin of mine as you have brought forth before a holy God, that, that's, not even, that's not even a fraction of how sinful I am. You know, I, I, I love this passage here. I mean, love, hate it. But, but it says here, Satan accuses us day and night before our God. Why can Satan accuse us day and night before our God? Because he has an unlimited amount of material to use against us. As we think about our motivations, our passions, so often they are not for God. And so he has all of this evidence to show that we are unrighteous people. And so as a holy God, as judge, here's the evidence laid out against us by our accuser, Satan. The, the judge slams the gavel and he says, guilty. And as the bailiff comes to lead us away to our punishment, which is death, our attorney our representative, our advocate, Jesus Christ, stands up in our place and says, take me instead. And he's led to the death chamber of Golgotha where he is nailed to the cross to die for our sins and then raises on the third day to give us victory over Satan, sin, and death. And one of those things about that passage that just really leaped out to me this week is that as Christ is hanging on the cross, he cries out this question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why has God the Father forsaken God the Son? And the answer to that question is Dan Jackson. It's Trisha's Jackson. It's everyone who has claimed the blood on their behalf. And that's what we see here as we look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, and they, talking about believers, have conquered him, being Satan and his accusations, by the blood of the lamb. We conquer by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. See, friends, there are two ways, two ways to not be guilty. There are two ways to get into heaven, two ways to be saved. The first way is to be perfectly righteous and without sin. Good luck with that. <laughs> The second way is to claim the blood of a righteous one on your behalf. Have you claimed the blood of Christ on your behalf? Claim the blood that paid for all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your wickedness, 
Claim the blood in which Christ has imputed or given his righteousness to us as he has taken our sin upon himself. You see, the reason why the devil is kicked out of the heavenly courtroom is because the trial is over, the verdict is in, the penalty has been paid, and no more charges can be made against you because of the blood of the lamb. Verse 11 and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Jesus says it this way. He says, whoever loves his life will lose it. But whoever hates his life, that is in comparison to Jesus, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. They love their lives not even unto death because they loved Jesus. They loved the precious blood of Jesus more than life itself. And then in verse 12, there is this call, this beckoning to the hosts of heaven. And it says, therefore rejoice. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Angels, heavenly hosts, saints that have gone before us, rejoice at the spectacular salvation of Christ on our behalf because Satan, the great accuser of the people of God, has been kicked out of the courtroom of heaven. The blood of the lamb has covered all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our punishment. This is the glorious, wonderful aftermath of Christmas. The dragon has been defeated and the child has been victorious in his mission of accomplishing our salvation. Finally, the final aftermath that we see here in this passage is that the woman is embattled. Look at verse 12, second half with me. There's a great shift in the, the, the mood of this passage in this portion. Verse 12b says, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Make no mistake, the dragon has been defeated. The dragon has been declawed and defanged. The war has been won by Christ through his death and resurrection. The end is imminent. The end is near. But the dragon is angry. He knows his time is short. He knows he has been conquered. And so he has intensified his wrath upon the earth. Verse 13 again says, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, talking about the people of God who had given birth to the male child. But the woman who, had given, who, who was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time, also 1,260 days, which we talked about last Sunday. Well, let's pause here because there's a lot of really rich stuff here in verses 13 through 14. First off, it says that during this time of Satan's wrath, the people of God have been given two wings of eagles to fly from the serpent. These wings of eagles are a metaphor that the people would have been familiar with from Exodus 19. In Exodus chapter 19, after he brings the people of God out of slavery and bondage of Egypt and into the wilderness... The Lord says to the people, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And so these eagles' wings are representative of the salvation of God out of a dominion of darkness and bringing people onto himself. 
But the second really impactful thing in this passage, and you see it throughout this chapter, is it says that he brought the woman into the wilderness. The wilderness has such a historical significance and therefore such a metaphorical significance to the people of God. If you think again of the Exodus story, the wilderness is where the people of God escaped to when they escaped from bondage and slavery in Egypt. The wilderness is where the people of God struggled with idolatry and sin and thirst and hunger and suffering. The wilderness is also where the people of God enjoyed the provisions of God. When he brought water from a rock and he brought manna to the people of God day after day to feed them. The wilderness is where the people of God sojourned awaiting to cross into the promised land where there would be milk and honey and provision and blessings. And the wilderness is where the people of God, with the exception of two, died. If you have claimed the blood of the lamb on your behalf, if you are a born-again Christian trusting in Christ for your salvation, metaphorically, you are in the wilderness. You are no longer a slave in Egypt. You're no longer a slave to Satan, sin, or death. You have been brought out of bondage, but you also have not made it into the promised land yet. You are not yet into heaven where there is peace and prosperity. You are in the wilderness under the kingship of Jesus, struggling with thirst and hunger and pain, struggling with selfishness and sin and idolatry, but also experiencing the great provision of God day after day after day as he provides the manna of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as he provides to us uh, water that will refresh us, the Holy Spirit. And it is in this wilderness that we call life that we peek into and long for the long-awaited promised land of heaven. Christian, if you are here today, you probably ask the question, why is life so hard? Why is being a teenager so hard? Why is being a kid so hard? Why is being an adult, a parent so hard? Why is marriage so hard? Why is work so hard? Why is growing old and elderly so hard? Why is everything so hard? Why is work so hard? Why is putting together an inflatable punching bag so hard? Why is everything so hard? And the reason why everything is so hard is because while you are no longer a slave in Egypt, you are not yet in the promised land of heaven. You are wandering in the wilderness, struggling, sinning, idolizing. You're plagued by pain. And yet in the midst of this wilderness... God is providing for us day after day after day, as it says here, to nourish us, to nourish our souls. You see, Satan has no claim over you. He cannot keep you from the promised land. But as 1 Peter 5, 8 says, the defeated dragon, our adversary, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This passage continues in verse 15. It says, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and this earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his 
mouth. Now, most likely, I'm not positive, but most likely this river pouring from the serpent's mouth uh, was deception. That's what Satan does. He is a deceiver. And so it's words of discouragement, words of accusation, words of, sh words of shame, words of false doctrine. And yet God has given us this scripture to defeat those deceptions, to swallow up the lies of Satan. And, and so, so God is protecting his people. And this is what how it makes Satan feel. Verse 17, it says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Talking about us, the church today. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Just real quick, do you notice here how the people of God are identified? They're identified in two ways. One way is that they keep the word of God. They keep the commandments of God. Not perfectly, none of us do, but progressively, there is fruit being born through our life. But secondly, they're identified as those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. That is those who do not claim their own righteousness for their salvation, but plead the blood of the lamb and claim the righteousness of Christ on their behalf. Verse 17 then finishes out the chapter. And it says, and he, the devil dragon, stood on the sand of the sea. This is a segue into chapter 13 that just continues to describe the attack of this devil dragon upon the people of God. The war has been won, but the battle continues. In August 1945, um, the war ended with Japan. Prior to that, some men had been stationed on an island in the Philippines, a small island, and one of those men stationed on an island was named Hiro Onuda. And he was stationed on a small island called Lubang. And uh, even though he heard reports that the war was over, he didn't believe it to be true. And he continued to battle for the next 29 years of his life. 29 years after the war ended with Japan, he continued to hide out on the island in the, in the wilderness and to battle against the people of the islands. He killed 29, excuse me, he killed 30 different Philippines on that island and engaged in several shootouts because he refused to believe that the war was over. He continued to battle, but the verdict was already in. See, in the same way, Christians, the devil dragon has been defeated. It's already done. It's already accomplished. But that dragon continues to battle against us day after day after day because he knows that his time is short, his days are numbered, he's been defeated, and there's a day coming soon when that child will come again and cast him away to the lake of fire, never to cause any pain or suffering ever again. And so when you endure suffering in this world, when life is hard, don't be discouraged thinking that it is a sign of God's inability to fix things. But be encouraged. Suffering is a reminder that God has been victorious upon the cross, that the devil has been defeated, and he's lashing out in frustrated fury as we await the promised land. Let me end with this. Um, about seven or eight years ago, uh, I was going through, at that point in time, really probably the hardest part in ministry. Uh, there was a person that I was friends with, uh, who was just uh, plunging into self-destructive habits, uh, and it was, and, and they, there was no repentance over it. Uh, they were just, they were just going. Uh, they were, they were causing damage to themselves. 
They're causing damage, great damage to their family, great damage to the church. And it was just so sad and I was so heartbroken about it. Uh, during that season, I was also attending a funeral at the church I formerly served at, New Hope Church. And, and this is just one of those times in the wilderness in which God just so nourished my soul with a song. I don't know if you've ever felt that when you're driving in the car and just the right song comes on and God is nourishing your soul through that song. But in this funeral, this song came on that we sang together. And it's a paraphrase of Psalm 46, but to be honest with you, it could, it could easily be a summary of Revelation chapter 12. Um, interestingly enough, it was written in 1527 when a pandemic was sweeping across Europe. The first line of it is so powerful uh, that Martin Luther, the author of this song, wrote it on his gravestone. This song has been a reminder to the people of God throughout the past 500 years of history that the devil dragon has been defeated, that the Christ child has accomplished his mission of salvation but that we, the people of God, who wander in the wilderness, still endure suffering and pain and struggles as we are attacked by the defeated dragon, awaiting the promised land of heaven. And so this song may be familiar to you. Feel free to close your eyes if you want, but I wanna read you a portion of this song. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark, meaning a defensive wall, never failing, our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name. From age to age, the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful for these repercussions of Christmas, this aftermath of Christmas, that you have defeated the dragon through your death and resurrection, that you have accomplished our salvation and though, Lord, we in this day struggle with the battle of Satan against us as he, as he takes this last ditch effort to cause all the turmoil and pain possible, God, we are so thankful that you nourish us through your word, through your spirit, and through the sacraments. And so we come to the table today, Lord, in the midst of the battle, in the midst of wandering in the wilderness, in the midst of our struggles, to be nourished by a great and gracious God as you have rained down for us manna from heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we come as weak and weary wanderers in the wilderness to feast on your nourishment through these elements by the Holy Spirit. And we're thankful for you. And thankful for the day when there will be no more dragon, but only the promised land of heaven with you.
In Jesus' name, amen.